Chapter Sixteen of Virgin Soil, Volume One, by Ivan Turgenev, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The next morning, when Nishtanov woke up, he felt no embarrassment at the recollection of what had happened overnight. On the contrary, he was filled with a kind of serene and sober happiness, as though he had done something which ought really to have been done long before. Asking for two days' leave from Sipyagin, who consented at once, though stiffly, to his absence, Neshtanov went to Markelov's. Before starting, he succeeded in getting an interview with Mariana. She, too, was not at all ashamed or embarrassed. She looked calmly and resolutely at him, and calmly addressed him by his Christian name. She was only excited about what he would learn at Markelov's, and begged him to tell her everything. "'That's a matter of course,' answered Neshtanov. And after all, he reflected, why should we be disturbed? In our friendship, personal feeling has played a secondary part, though we are united forever. In the name of the cause? Yes, in the name of the cause. So fancied Neshtanov, and he did not suspect how much of truth and how much of falsehood there was in his fancies. He found Markelov in the same weary and morose frame of mind. They dined after a fashion and then set off in the same old coach. They hired from a peasant a second trace-horse, a colt, who had never been in harness before. Markelov's horse was still lame. To the merchant Faleyev's big cotton factory, where Solomin lived. Neshtanov's curiosity was aroused. He felt eager to make a closer acquaintance with a man of whom he had heard so much of late. Solomin was prepared for their visit. When the two travellers stopped at the gates of the factory and gave their names, they were promptly conducted into the unsightly little lodge occupied by the superintendent of the machinery. He was himself in the chief wing of the building. While one of the workmen ran to fetch him, Neshtanov and Markelov had time to go to the window and look about them. The factory was apparently in a flourishing condition and overburdened with work. From every side came the brisk, noisy hum of unceasing activity, the snorting and rattling of machines, the creaking of looms, the hum of wheels, the flapping of straps while trolleys, barrels and loaded carts moved in and out. There was the sound of loudly shouted instructions, bells and whistles. Workmen in smocks with belts round the waist, their hair bound round with a strap, workgirls in print dresses hurried by. Horses were led by in harness. There was the busy hum of the labour of thousands of human beings strained to their utmost. Everything moved in regular, rational fashion at full speed. But not only was there no attempt at style or neatness, there was not even any trace of cleanliness to be observed in anything anywhere. On the contrary, on all sides one was impressed by neglect, filth, grime. Here a window was broken and there the plaster was peeling off, the boards were loose, a door yawned wide open, a great black puddle covered with an iridescent film of slime stood in the middle of the principal courtyard. Further on lay some discarded bricks. Bits of matting and sailcloth, boxes, scraps of rope lay wallowing in the mud. Shaggy and lean dogs crept about, not even barking. In a corner under a fence sat a pot-bellied, dishevelled little boy of four, covered from head to foot with soot, crying hopelessly as though he had been deserted by the whole world. Beside him, besmeared with the same soot, a sow, surrounded by a litter of spotted sucking pigs, was inspecting some cabbage stalks. Ragged linen was fluttering on a line. And what an odour, what a stench everywhere. A Russian mill, in fact, not a German or a French factory. Nishtanov glanced at Markelov. 
i have heard so much talked about solomine's great abilities he began that i confess all this disorder rather surprises me i didn't expect it it isn't a disorder answered markelov grimly it's the russian sluttishness for all that it's turning over millions and he has to adapt himself to the old ways and to practical needs and to the owner himself have you any notion what Faleyev's like not the slightest the greatest skinflint in moscow a bourgeois that's the word for him at that instant solomine came into the room again neshtanov was fated to be disappointed in him as in the factory at first sight solomine gave one the impression of being a finn or still more a swede he was tall lean broad-shouldered with light eyebrows and eyelashes he had a long yellow face a short broad nose very small greenish eyes a placid expression large prominent lips white teeth also large and a cleft chin covered with a faint down he was dressed as a mechanic or stoker an old pea-jacket with baggy pockets on his body a crumpled oilskin cap on his head a woolen comforter round his neck and tarred boots on his feet he was accompanied by a man about forty in a rough peasant coat with an exceedingly mobile gypsy face and keen jet-black eyes with which he at once scanned neshtanov as soon as he came into the room markelov he knew already his name was pavel he was said to be solomine's right hand solomine approached his two visitors without haste pressed the hand of each of them in his horny bony hand without a word took a sealed packet out of the table drawer and handed it also without a word to pavel who at once went out of the room then he stretched and cleared his throat flinging his cap off his head with one wave of his hand he sat down on a wooden painted stool and motioning markelov and neshtanov to a similar sofa he said please sit down markelov first introduced solomine to neshtanov he again shook hands with him then markelov began talking of the cause and mentioned vasily nikolaevich's letter neshtanov handed the letter to solomine while he read it attentively and deliberately his eyes moving on from line to line neshtanov watched him solomine was sitting near the window the sun now low in the sky threw a glaring light on his tanned slightly perspiring face and his light dusty hair showing up a number of golden threads among them his nostrils quivered as his breath came and went while he read and his lips moved as though he were forming each word he held the letter with a strong grip rather high up with both hands all this for some unknown reason pleased neshtanov solomine gave the letter back to neshtanov smiled at him and again began listening to markelov the latter talked and talked but at last he ceased do you know what began solomine and his voice rather hoarse but young and powerful pleased neshtanov too it's not quite convenient here at my place let us go to your house it's not more than five miles to you i suppose you came in the coach yes well then there will be room for me in an hour my work is over and i am at liberty we will have a talk are you at liberty too he addressed neshtanov till the day after tomorrow that's capital we will stay the night with mr markelov can we do that sergey mialich what a question of course you can well i'll be ready directly only let me clean myself up a bit and how are things going with you at the factory markelov inquired significantly solomon looked away we will have a talk he said a second time wait a little i'll be back directly i've forgotten something he went out 
if it had not been for the good impression he had made on Neshtanov, the latter would probably have thought, and perhaps even have said to Markelov, isn't he shuffling out of it? But no question of the sort even entered his head. An hour later, at the time when from every floor of the vast building, on every staircase, and at every door the noisy crowd of factory hands were streaming out, the coach, in which were seated Markelov, Neshtanov and Solomin, drove out of the gates onto the road. Vasily Fedotich, is it to be done? Pavel, who had escorted Solomin to the gate, shouted after him. No, wait a little, answered Solomin. That refers to a night operation, he explained to his companion. They reached Borzionkovo, and had supper rather for the sake of manners. Then cigars were lighted and the talk began, one of those interminable midnight Russian talks, which of the same form and on the same scale are hardly to be found in any other people. Here too, though, Solomin did not fulfil Neshtanov's expectations. He spoke noticeably little, so little that one might say he was almost continually silent. But he listened intently, and if he uttered any criticism or remark, then it was sensible, weighty, and very brief. It turned out that Solomin did not believe that a revolution was at hand in Russia. But not wishing to force his opinions on others, he did not try to prevent them from making an attempt, and looked on at them, not from a distance, but as a comrade by their side. He was very intimate with the Petersburg revolutionists, and was to a certain extent in sympathy with them, since he was himself one of the people. But he realized the instinctive aloofness from the movement of the people, without whom you can do nothing, and who need a long preparation, and that not in the manner nor by the means of these men. And so he stood aside, not in a hypocritical or shifty way, but like a man of sense who doesn't care to ruin himself or others for nothing. But as for listening, why not listen and learn too if one can? Solomine was the only son of a deacon. He had five sisters, all married to village priests or deacons. But with the consent of his father, a steady, sober man, he had given up the seminary, had begun to study mathematics, and had devoted himself with special ardour to mechanics. He had entered the business of an Englishman, who had come to love him like a father, and had given him the means of going to Manchester, where he spent two years and learned English. He had lately come into the Moscow merchant's factory, and though he was exacting with subordinates, because that was the way of doing things he had learned in England, he was in high favour with them. He's one of ourselves, they used to say. His father was much pleased with him. He used to call him a very steady-going chap, and his only complaint was that his son didn't want to get married. During the midnight conversation at Markelov's, Solomin was, as we have said already, almost completely silent. But when Markelov began discussing the expectations he had formed of the factory hands, Solomin, with his habitual brevity, observed that with us in Russia, factory workers are not what they are abroad. They're the meekest set of people. And the peasants? inquired Markelov. The peasants. There are pretty many of the close-fisted money-lending sort among them now, and every year there'll be more. But they only know their own interest. The rest are sheep, blind and ignorant. Then where are we to look? Solomine smiled. Seek and ye shall find. He was almost constantly smiling, and the smile, like the man himself, was peculiarly guileless, but not meaningless. To Neshtanov he behaved in quite a special way. The young student had awakened a feeling of interest, almost of tenderness, in him. During this same midnight discussion, Neshtanov suddenly got flushed and hot, and broke into an outburst. Solomine softly got up, 
and moving across the room with his large tread he closed a window that stood open behind neshtanov's head you mustn't get cold he remarked naively in reply to the orator's puzzled look neshtanov began questioning him as to what socialistic ideas he was trying to introduce into the factory in his charge and whether he intended to arrange for the work people to have a share of the profits my dear soul answered solomon we have set up a school and a tiny hospital and to be sure our master struggled against that like a bear once only solomon lost his temper in earnest and struck the table such a blow with his powerful fist that everything shook upon it not excepting a forty-pound weight that lay near the inkstand he had been told of some legal injustice the oppressive treatment of a workmen's guild when neshtanov and markelov started discussing how to act how to put their plans into execution solomon still listened with curiosity even with respect but he did not himself utter a single word this conversation lasted till four o'clock and what what did they not discuss markelov among other things alluded mysteriously to the indefatigable traveller kislyakov to his letters which were becoming more and more interesting he promised to show neshtanov some of them and even to let him take them home since they were very lengthy and not written in a very legible hand and over and above this there was a great deal of erudition in them and there were verses too only not frivolous ones but of a socialistic tendency from kislyakov markelov passed to soldiers adjutants germans he got at last to his articles on the artillery neshtanov talked of the antagonism between heine and berne of proudhon of realism in art while solomon listened listened and pondered and smoked and still smiling and not saying a single smart thing he seemed to understand better than anyone what lay at the root of the matter it struck four neshtanov and markelov were almost dropping with fatigue while solomon had not turned a hair the friends separated but first it was mutually agreed to go the next day to the town to see the merchant golushkin on propaganda business golushkin himself was very zealous and moreover he promised proselytes solomon expressed a doubt whether it was worth while to visit golushkin however he agreed later that it was worth while end of chapter sixteen